When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. I am recording this on September 8th, 2020. Yeah, so this episode, we have journalist, author, and all-around great guy, Alexander Zychek, to talk about prescription drugs and pharma and how the whole industry has kind of been rotten from the inside out by capitalism. Very excited to talk to Alex. He is the author of three books, including The Gilded Rage, A Wild Ride Through Donald Trump's America, which I can't recommend enough. It's a uh, Studs Terkel-ish documentation of of Trump supporters, of you know the part of America that was wildly and continues to be wildly misunderstood by the mainstream media. Uh, you know, Alex was the first person to tell me that Trump was definitely getting elected. <laughs> and, um, you know, and his book is not a, a screed. It's not a polemic. It's a uh, documentation of life in the part of America that gets uh, missed by so many um, pundits and so-called experts. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Definitely check it out. And... Be sure to check out his current reporting. You can find all that at his website, zycheck.com. It'll be in the show notes. He's been writing about, among other things, uh, drug patents, the effect that this capitalist uh, medical establishment is having on our pandemic response, all, all kinds of things that uh, might sound a little, little dry, but really are super important for understanding why America is doing what it's doing in the face of COVID-19 and where that might lead us. So without further ado, here is Alexander Zychek. The drug is approved. Next... I'm a freelance journalist who writes about all sorts of stuff. At the moment, uh, since, I don't know, 2018 or so, 
one of the subjects I've been covering is the pharmaceutical industry and drug pricing politics, which bleeds into intellectual property and uh, basically just the nature of science and medicine and medical research in the capitalist system, sort of broadly defined, all those nexus of issues. I mean, I've known you to be interested in this stuff for many years. For Salon, you did something about um, antibiotics that was really good. Like That was like three or four years ago. 2013. Oh, was it that long ago? It was a long time ago, yeah. Yeah, and um, so your current project you've kind of been working on since 2018, so that you were looking into this stuff right before the shit went down, so to speak, with the pandemic. Well, everyone kind of has been. I mean, drug prices are one of the top issues mm-hmm. when the American public is polled. Everyone's been thinking about these issues in one way or another. And then when the pandemic hit, all of those debates and arguments and crises kind of got a new spotlight because all of a sudden those same issues were determining the research and ownership around a vaccine and treatments like remdesivir. So I think a lot of people are kind of have been hovering around these issues, um, even if they don't necessarily realize it every time that they curse drug prices and wonder why the hell we can't make this stuff cheaper, uh, like insulin. They're basically honing in on the big global debate around uh, COVID-19 vaccine and intellectual property that's taking place with the World Health Organization and the World Trade Organization and other venues, which we can get into. Yeah, your uh, most recent uh, New Republic article, you kind of focus on Gilead and Remdesivir, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Well, remdesivir is an antiviral that was originally developed uh, to try and treat Ebola. Um, it was thought to maybe have potential against hepatitis C, um, but was basically shelved by Gilead um, when the Ebola crisis passed and they had all of these candidate molecules. Um and they put it in their offshore IP vault, which is where they keep most of their intellectual property, so they don't have to pay taxes on it. Um, and it was rediscovered by a Centers for Disease Control scientist when they were scanning um, the library, and it was identified as a potential um, coronavirus um, agent. And it was kind of re-evaluated by a bunch of government scientists. Um, and eventually they decided that it deserved uh, fast-track um, approval as a treatment for COVID-19. This, um, I believe it was April. Could be wrong about that. Um, but this spring. And uh, it's patented uh, drug, even though it was developed on an enormous amount of foundational science into RNA proteins, the, the certain, you know, the target um, for the drug and also its parent chemical structure. All of this stuff was government-funded scientists that gave the Gilead uh, scientists a framework for, quote-unquote, inventing remdesivir. And then it was government money that did all, most of the clinical and preclinical um, tri- trials that were fast-tracked. And now we're basically paying their market rate. So that was kind of the the piece exploring that tension between this enormous amount of government 
investment that made this drug possible and the complete lack of um, obligation or pressure on this company to price, um, you know, re- reflecting that public investment. There's, there's no price controls. We were still at a stage in the, in the drug debate in this country where price controls are, are considered, you know, a dirty word, um, although that may be changing uh, hopefully soon as we kind of get closer to the unavoidable, what used to be taboo, breaking patents, um, enforcing, um, you know, prices closer to the cost of manufacture. Gilead was jacking up remdesivir like 40, 50 times the cost of manufacture. Um, so that debate is now kind of in its early stages, but uh, all the issues are there and they apply just as much to the eventual vaccine that may come from, um, you know, these huge investments in Operation quote-unquote warp speed, you know, six, $10 billion going to these companies and their stock valuations bumped and people got rich off of that before they even produced anything. And then, you know, they may turn around and try to sell a vaccine for, you know, quote-unquote market price of $37 when it could be made for much less. So all these issues in remdesivir apply not just to other COVID um, research projects, but also just essential medicines, new drugs, up and down the line. This this central tension between um, government-subsidized research and a completely uninhibited um, market pricing system geared towards making investors and executives obscenely, obscenely wealthy. Emphasis on obscenely. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry has returned the fattest margins of any sector in the economy in terms of just pure profit. Right. And the um, that model you just kind of described where uh, Gilead gets, you know, funding every step of the way, Perhaps some of the development was done at a university that was, you know, paid for with go- by the government. But, it, you know, all these grants and everything lead to them developing remdesivir. And then they turn around and at a pro- that becomes their product, their intellectual property. That's common, right? Like we're, ta- we're looking historically, that's generally how it works. Recently, recent decades... Uh, that's how it's worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, it's worth mentioning that one of the big government labs is, is right in your neck of the woods in Pittsburgh. There's a, a lot of military associated research happening at, at university of Pittsburgh, um, research centers, but yes. And what's new is, well, new as of the 1980s is, um, the technology spinning out of these government funded labs is landing, completely in the private sector. Whereas in the past you had more um, kind of hybrid situations where the private sector would get a limited license and the government would retain some control. Um, And that has continually been shifting towards the pharma's favor since uh, the early 1980s when a series of laws um, were put in place to accelerate that shift and empower industry over um over public claims on on research and associated inventions do you have any insight into that how that happened was that kind of like because it sounds like a big pharma kind of legislative you know congress enabled big pharma takeover like historically what was happening to allow that to happen yeah it's been a big multi-decade fight 
um, going back, you know, for our purposes, let's just say World War II, when it became clear that the U.S. government was going to be the major funder of, let's just stick with medicine here, biomedical research um, coming out of World War II when, you know, we funded the labs that um, came up with industrial penicillin and a bunch of major vaccine breakthroughs. Um, and the debate was, okay, well, are we going to maintain control over the patents that um, are going to be attached to these inventions? And some people said that without um, the incentive of monopoly control, industry won't want to partner with government and, um, you know, they'll just hire all the scientists to their side because scientists only want to work with the potential of becoming billionaires and all this nonsense that we're still listening to. Um, and the other side, uh, mostly New Dealers and New Dealer-influenced um, generation basically said, well, if that's true, then maybe we don't need industry. Like, we're already developing this stuff. They don't want to work with us and in, in exchange for, you know, smaller profits um, and a junior role in this relationship, who needs them? Let them do their own research. Um, and that logic, had it prevailed, would have led probably to the next stage of that thinking, which is we need a full cycle public drug sector. Like a lot of countries had in the 20th century and, and some still do, and not just Cuba either, but like Sweden, <laughs> you know, um, and they're very successful and uh, they pay for themselves and they pay for the creation of manufacture cheap, affordable drugs for the people um, and their public health sectors generally. So this debate unfolded basically beginning in World War II and industry, you know, it's a complicated story and I'm still researching it deep in the weeds of it, but basically it's a story of an industry capture. Um, it, you know, pharma spends more on lobbying than any other industry. They have a lock on both parties. They have for a long time. And in 1980, um, two bills were signed. The more famous one is by Dole, which basically accelerated and streamlined the transfer of public science into private monopoly hands. And um, it's, you know, been globalized since then, with mostly to the WTO. And that's another battle. So there's like two things happening here at once, which deal with the same issues. You have a national fight and then a global version of that fight over um, the power of corporations to patent and price drugs. And the U.S., if we, if the, you know, quote, unquote, uh, not quote, unquote, if the good guys win in the U.S., then that would have a major impact um, on the global uh, level because then there would be, uh, you know, less major U.S. pharmaceutical companies um, basically determining uh, U.S. trade policy and have less power to go after foreign co companies and foreign countries that are, uh, you know, not so respectful of, of IP. So the two are related um, in a way, although it's hard to kind of talk about them both at the same time, so maybe it's easier to stick to, to the U.S., uh, story kind of just going back to remdesivir um kind of as really an example of a much bigger problem it's obviously not just remdesivir it's all our pharmaceuticals to some extent um at least 
you know, the ones we're trying to invent to take on COVID. Um, was remdesivir, like, what, what does the research show as far as its effectiveness with COVID? Like, is it like hydrochloroquine where it was like they had a sense that it might work and then they did trials and kind of... There was a study that showed it shortened stays. It shortened hospital stays. And then that was kind of challenged by another study, which stressed that there was no difference in mortality. So it's, you know, it's still kind of being debated, but there does appear still to be some argument for it as a treatment that can assuage severe um, COVID in people who are forced into the hospital. Um, And, you know, to the extent that's true or not, we may not know for a while, but when there's nothing else out there in a situation like this, people kind of grab onto whatever they can. Um, and he was certainly happy to promote, um, you know, that, uh, that angle. And they've, uh, you know, they, they're going to make a good bit of money, um, off the drug. So is it, is the drug like, like a frontline treatment or is it being, yeah, it's, it's FDA approved. It's the only one. It got fast track for approval. It's being shipped to hospitals and sold um, internationally. And uh, the science is still kind of playing itself out. But as of now, it is, yeah, the only approved treatment. So so let's talk about that letter. 34 states attorneys general are contesting the, the IP uh, that Gilead holds on remdesivir. Yeah. So the states attorneys general are saying that Gilead has not lived up to its obligations as enumerated in by Dole for companies who have received uh, or claimed a monopoly on government-funded research. So by Dole requires companies to make the drug available um, at a reasonable price in the public interest, I don't have the language in front of me, but it's very clear. And it also is very clear in terms of what constitutes government um, help. Basically, it involves like first application of use, if the funding came before that, which it clearly did in this case. Um, it, it clears the bar, the bar, the hurdle, absolutely no question. So, what the state attorneys general are saying is Gilead is not living up to its half of the bargain. Therefore, the government has rights under Bidol to, quote unquote, march in, smash the patent and basically license other manufacturers um, to to make the stuff. And they'll be protected from uh, infringement suits because the government has the back and has okayed this. Uh, and that, that would result in generics manufacturers producing the stuff um, on government contract for much less, um, possibly even the cost of manufacture. And that would drastically reduce the price uh, across the board, which is what happens when drugs go generic. It would just accelerate that process um, to now, basically. And uh, and Baydol refers to the 1980 Patent and Trademark Law Amendments Act. Yeah, so that's a bill co-sponsored by Birch Bayh, and Bob Dole, it was a bipartisan piece of legislation signed by Jimmy Carter, not Ronald Reagan, right before Reagan took office. Um, although it was perfectly in line with what that decade came to be. 
I mean, it's kind of like one of the ultimate early signs of the sort of coming neoliberal age is by Dole, where it basically took this ambiguity in the relationship between um, government patent power and private patent power and skewed it heavily towards um, industry, basically said little labs inside government-funded institutions, universities um, can spin off that technology and keep rights. And so it implicated universities, not just industry. Suddenly you have all of these um, public labs who are, have an opportunity to get very rich very fast. So it sort of incentivized them to kind of uh, work with industry and share their um, interests in a way that hadn't been made as clear or as tempting before. Um, and it, it ultimately signified kind of an abdication of this older idea that government science should be under the public, under government control and in, in the public um, and, and used in the public interest, basically, which is wide availability, equitable access at the lowest possible price because it's medicine. It's not a new car. There should be different <laughs> standards involved. And, you know, it also cars aren't funded in their design and, and uh, you know, the, the research that goes into them are not. Um, happening in government labs like they are with, with medicines and, and vaccines. So that's, you know, it, it should be a separate category. And for a long time in this country, it was, that was considered obvious. So the fact that now we have generations of people who've grown up thinking this is just how it is, this is normal, it's not normal. Like for most of American history, this was considered profoundly shocking, the idea that, I mean, when Germany came over and tried to impose uh, a monopoly on aspirin, in the 1890s, every single neighborhood druggist in this country just about began to organize and participate in, in an international smuggling operation to basically undermine Bayer's monopoly claims and control of the aspirin trade. And that was considered normal. Like, the public was like, of course, why, why would we allow the Germans to come in and set this crazy price on, uh, on an essential medicine that's a tenth? It's 10 times what they're charging in Canada, in France, countries that do not allow medical uh, monopolies. And that was true of most of the world. The U.S. was an outlier. Um, and it was the bastardly Germans who were the ones who kind of introduced it in the U.S. And, uh, you know, it was a jagged process, not a direct line. And then when World War I broke out, um, Palmer, Mitchell Palmer of the Palmer Raids took all of Bayer's IP and um, requisitioned all the foreign firms' IP. So anyway, it's a long, sort of not, uh, complicated story, but the idea that this is normal and how it is and the only way to incentivize, you know, development of medicines is, is just absolute nonsense. And it's one of the key successes of the industry that they've built up this narrative through their think tanks and through their messaging operations and just endless repetition in the political sphere to the point where people just think it's normal. They've normalized something that was profoundly fucking weird for a long time and still is in most of the world. Yeah, yeah. And and, and you point out in your article that um, the Bayh-Dole Act um, hasn't been used in 40 years. So it's not only did we get this... The, the, the public interest trigger hasn't been used. So what hasn't been used is the language that says companies have to price their the resulting technologies reasonably for the public interest. 
ensuring equitable wide access. There's a trigger for the government to march in. That's what hasn't, hasn't been used. By dole is used every day. It's what the industry is based on in, in large measure. What hasn't been used is the government's override button, which is supposed to be, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the emergency eject button when, when the system goes wrong, which it has been doing for a long time. And there have been petitions like this one to, to say, look, look at the letter of the law. Use the button. Press the goddamn button. And it never has been. It's still under glass. Do you think that COVID and remdesivir, like, could that be kind of the case that opens the floodgates to some enforcement of that? I mean, if this isn't, you know, an opportunity to raise the profile on these issues, I don't know what, you know, (laughs) is going to do it. But there's certainly an opportunity for getting people to think about this a little more clearly and focus on this. Um, and you know, if there was a cost issue associated with the eventual vaccine, that would certainly, um, bring attention to it. But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people in the drugs access, um, world, and it is a global movement now, it's kind of, it's come a long way since the nineties when it began, um, as a way to pressure the drug companies to uh, allow generic production of the first HIV medications, which were priced way beyond what people in Africa, for example, could afford. Um, so these people are, are, you know, organizing and um, certainly understand that this is a special time to kind of talk about this stuff. And uh, it's not getting a lot of attention in the U.S., but it, in the World Health Organization, there's uh, a COVID-19 technology access pool um, that has been set up. It was set up at this spring's World Health Assembly. And basically, it's basically an opportunity for countries to put all COVID-19, all government funded uh, or privately funded corporations can join too, um, COVID-19 research in an open science, open license pool. Um, none of the big drug producing country, countries or companies have really had, you know, <laughs> had much to do with it. Um, they're more interested in voluntary uh, alliances and, uh, you know, things that are nice words, but don't really result in any fundamental paradigm shift. Well, Marv, are, are, are they in? Yes, Don. The grosses are in. Well? Well, Don, I, I think it's important to, to remember that these things are never quite as bad as they may seem at first. I mean, the data can be interpreted in many ways. I think it's important to bear that in mind. There, there are a lot of ways of interpreting the data, Don. Right. I think that you should just... You son of a bitch, word number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got you, Don. <laughs> Son of a bitch, we beat penicillin. We kicked penicillin, sorry, ass, Don. <laughs> Could I have the room for a second, you son of a bitch? Yes, Don, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> we beat penicillin!
and you know, I'm thinking of America's kind of declining role on the world stage in all sorts of areas. And like, would all it really takes is for the rest of the international community to kind of like wash its hands of the United States and say, we're just going to do this. Like, um, like they can certainly manufacture remdesivir if they wanted to. I mean, it is true that patent law is, is, is a national decision, even though there's international treaties now. Um, and governments can ignore them. Like uh, India still declines to approve international patents, even though they're supposed to under um, WTO laws. There's still a lot like from gray area to operate in. And if enough countries just said, you know what, we're done with patents, then yeah, that would make a difference. Unfortunately, the U.S. model has been kind of globalized and most of the wealthy countries that house the big drug makers um, are not you know, moving in that direction, except here and there in the margins. Like one of the first patent challenges of, of the pandemic happened in Israel, though. And so it does happen where Israel basically told Abby V to go screw because they were thinking that there was an HIV medication that would have some um, activity against COVID and they wanted to work with it. And they said, we don't respect this patent. And they basically challenged Abby V to come at them and Abby V just declined. Um, in the Netherlands, there's another case where Roche didn't want to give the specifications for a COVID test. And the Dutch government was like, uh, yeah, we don't think so. We're going to take them. And they said, okay, all right, we back down. So yeah, I mean, ultimately this is like an issue where governments have a lot of power and even states do too. If a state, like the ones that signed this letter, um, the AG letter, uh, wanted to start producing drugs, like a big state like California or New York that has the capacity, they can't be sued in federal court for infringement of patent without their consent. So if they have a, a governor and an AG who's willing to tell a big drug maker to jump off a bridge and put the funds into producing a drug, they can do that. Clearly, the political will for something like that has not existed before now. Um, but, you know, maybe COVID's what's going to crack things open. That's, uh, that's certainly a, a hope for a lot of people, yeah. The the China thing, the uh, espionage thing uh, that you brought up in your article was really interesting. I because I remember hearing that story and just thinking like it was really bizarre that like Putin or whoever is is trying to get to our vaccine, and it's like like what what was what happened there exactly? Vaccine nationalism is uh, you know it's related to and sort of corporate version of it in a way, because the, the countries are aligning with their, their, their vaccine manufacturers and, and their, their biotech companies. And they're sort of looking at it as like an extension of their glory. And it's an extension of politics and, you know, prestige and uh, whatever is involved in, you know, international great power competition. But you're right. It, it doesn't seem right that it fits inside a pandemic, which is the ultimate kind of war of the world situation where it's humanity versus an invader. <laughs> and we're, you know, it's not, um, it's, you, you would hope, and, and certainly like the independence day scenario where everyone starts hugging, you know, the Palestinian and the Israeli jet fighters are hugging and everything. Um, there was a moment where it's like, maybe that would happen, but instead what you get is the scene that I thought of was not, <laughs> uh, Independence Day, um, you know, 
uh, hugs, but with the scene in Strange Love where the the soldier uh, has to shoot open the the Coca-Cola machine to get the quarter so he can call the president and tell him to stop the bombers. And he says, well, if you can't get the president on the phone, you're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola corporation. <laughs> like, sort of like that, except Gilead. Um, but yeah, it's completely absurd. Yeah. You kind of step back and really think about it. I mean, it really just kind of shows how nothing defies the markets or nothing defies this neoliberal framework that we've put around everything. It's like, um, I, I keep coming back to this point very early on when Fauci was giving one of his addresses and, you know, they were like talking about the need to figure out incentives and ways to get like pharma companies and, you know, corporations involved in the project of, you know, saving lives. And like he plainly said, you know, the system isn't made to for the government to do it itself. It, we need to get corporations involved. And I was like, that's really crazy. Like, basically what he was saying is if somebody can't make money off something, it's not going to happen. So we need to like put our heads together and figure out who's going to profit off of COVID. Yeah. And unfortunately, the system we have now, we don't have the infrastructure. Um, so we kind of technically do need some industry government partnership, but it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, had we chosen a different path out of World War II, we would not be dependent on industry. Uh, in a piece I did for the New Republic back in April, um, I talked about this government program where they were trying to build surge capacity and they had to depend on all of these um, private sector partners, none of whom were that interested in it. Um, a lot of them just ended up backing out or just like half-assing it. But the government uh, didn't have the ability or the will to just build it on its own and figured, you know, we're already so far down this road, we might as well just keep doing it. But it just keeps failing. And at this point, it's getting harder and harder to avoid the, the sort of big answer staring us in the face, which is a genuine public sector for the development research and manufacture and distribution of essential drugs, medicines, including vaccines. Well, they're insisting that we cut our research outlay by 60%. <laughs> of course I told them to fuck off. Good for you, Don. But then out loud I said I'd consider it. Of course, Don, exactly the right thing to do. Play with them. So where are we with that, Marv? With what, Don? Our restructuring plan. You mean the thing that you just mentioned just now? Yeah. Oh, we're on top of that, Don. And what is your prognosis as far as a vaccine? Everybody has one. Everybody has an opinion, and they all seem to be different. So um, as you look into this, like, what are the chances that we're going to find one or that we're going to find one in any time soon? Is Warp Speed living up to its name? I'm probably on my shakiest ground here because this is really a science question. But in the history of science, I think the fastest on record is four years. Um, so the idea that it will be done in four months was always a bit ridiculous. And you wouldn't want it done in four months. I mean, you need to test these things. You can't just start shooting a billion people in the arm with something with no idea what it's going to do. Um, but, you know, there's a piece in Politico recently talking about the U.S. approach versus the Chinese approach and how, um, they had a lot of critical voices from, you know, 
esteemed vaccine researchers saying the U.S. is sort of putting all its eggs in one basket um, in terms of the technological approaches, uh, where the Chinese have more of a distributed kind of portfolio of approaches, living virus versus dead virus, you know, attacking the, the protein spikes versus, you know, the core or whatever. Um, so who knows who's going to come up with it? I don't think anyone really cares. Um, but if it's not the U.S. and you're not uh, a wealthy person in a wealthy country, um, you know, you certainly wish that the system producing the drug and responsible for distributing it was not the one that we have. And if it does end up being China and Trump has created this us first them mentality and basically, you know, all but threatened to block people out, we could be on the other end of something similar um, where it becomes this just, this, you know political weapon who knows i mean probably the chinese would license it out under pressure i, I don't know i mean that would be a whole nother world of like <clears throat> we'll see when we get there but right now um i don't think anybody knows what's going to happen but uh there's definitely no precedent for something being found within a year ever i i guess i guess i'm what i'm wondering is like does the system that we have for funding drug trial, you know, funding research and, you know, making it a commercial product, making it IP, like, is that going to be detrimental or do you think that is detrimental to the search for a vaccine? Well, it already has been. Yeah. Because, because companies are incentivized under the current system to come up with drugs that have what guaranteed markets, big ones in wealthy countries that require constant administration, chronic illnesses. That's what the current system incentivizes. There's zero incentive right now under our current system for any drug maker to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars for a potential, you know, one in a million pandemic, some coronavirus that's floating around the bat population. All of that research is being done by organizations like CEPI, um, you know, nonprofit, technically nonprofit organizations that are, you know, basically giving free money to, you know, corporations to participate in this research. But, you know, the companies themselves, you can't even blame them. It's like they're creatures of this thing that we have allowed to develop, the system that we have and have built up. And according to the logic of that system, why would a company um, that we've completely allowed to, you know, an industry that was allowed to run completely amok and just create these massive, you know, amounts of money by buying its own stock back and jacking up the price on drugs just to enrich this tiny number of people. Like, and then you expect them to turn around and do like public minded, long-term expensive, high risk research in the global public interest. I mean, <laughs> no, no, it's not going to give you that. So don't complain, you know, like, I mean, you should complain. We should complain. We should complain very loudly is the point, but it's completely predictable. Like we've had 20 years of close calls of just absolutely terrifying close calls, mares, H5N1. I mean, go down the list. SARS-1, it's been more than 20 years. We've known these things were coming down like a meteor shower faster and faster. And we continued to build up the system, which 
um, is the most ill-equipped system you could imagine to deal with uh, a century in which these microbes are going to cross over more and more. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. As the author of The Gilded Rage, I'm wondering, were you surprised by the kind of how quickly the culture war aspect I'll say that like the toxic politics of our time is kind of like enmeshed with COVID, how we understand COVID and how we're reacting to it. Like, did you see that coming? Uh, I won't say it's not coming, but I don't think anyone was terribly shocked by it. By the time it happened, I mean, we were in year three of this administration. It was unfortunately entirely made, made all too much sense. Um, I mean, everything now is, is pretty much um, put through that sieve. And there's just so much anger and um, promotion of, of ignorance uh, and just uh, that, you know, uh, it's first then mentality that was always kind of about just pissing off people who um, like to talk about science. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, uh, yeah, it's rough. I mean, it's like, I don't know how many YouTube videos I can watch of like people with Trump's shirts screaming about losing their freedoms because they have to wear a mask. And then somebody with a mask is like a self, you know, satisfied liberal, <laughs> you know, yelling at them about whatever. It's just like, yeah, you got, you gotta, you gotta kind of like take this out of the frame of like MSNBC for, versus Fox news. If you want to, actually accomplish anything mm -hmm. yeah that's a good rule of thumb just generally <laughs> um yeah if everyone could, could take a step back from from cable news that would be a great great start although social media is you know now so embedded and warped in its own way i don't know i don't know how you get people to to kind of get back to quiet even for half a second anymore which is really the starting point for anything um but yeah, I, I stopped watching those videos. The first one in a while slipped through my radar. Um, I think it was yesterday or the other day. That person who put the the screaming women to a song, so it's a Rob Zombie soundtrack um, <laughs> in the zombie effects from like zombie movies. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, you gotta you gotta shut that stuff off. It was just driving crazy. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, is there anything that you see the media getting wrong or spectacularly wrong about, um, you know, the pharma or the, like the co like the vaccine or any, you know, aspect of your reporting that you're doing? Well, I mean, the big picture is pretty much always left uninvestigated. And before COVID, it was, you know, all this talk about drug prices, but we don't talk about patents and monopoly control. It's always like this liberal tinkering approach and like reforms and, you know, getting the industry, you know, at the table or in line or, you know, how we can make the industry better and all this shit. When really it's just like a tumor that needs to be shrunk and, you know, whacked over the head with a perfectly legal bat, which is basically in the shape of the U.S. Constitution. Like, this isn't that hard. Um, and that wasn't happening. And now with COVID, you have 
you know, the vaccine nationalism story is really the only frame that most people come to the IP story through is like, you know, it's this contest between our CIA funded fucking biotech companies <laughs> versus theirs. And it's like, that's it. You know, nobody says, wait, wait a second. Why are these corporate secrets to begin with? Isn't this a scientific project with a, you know, global, um, <laughs> this should be a, a human, human story, like the human race figuring out how to save itself from, you know, a complete locking up of its economy and millions and millions and millions of people dying horrible deaths, suffocating in their own fucking lungs. Like you'd think that might be a question that could be asked even alongside like the, 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 the nationalism frame or the corporate profits are needed to fund innovation lie. Um, like maybe just spare a little bit of room for stepping back and saying, wait a second, maybe the whole thing is rotten and counterproductive, but you just, you just really don't see that ever.